You're listening to Design Talk, a podcast for conversations connecting design with theory, organizations, business, and impact. Hello, my name is Max. Hello, my name is Liam, and we're very pleased to welcome Patrick O'Donnell. First, Patrick, can you give us an overview of your career and how you ended up covering the game industry for equity investment? Sure, uh, and thanks for the introduction. Um, yeah, great to be here. Um, I suppose just going backwards in time, I, I did a BSc in finance in UCC. Um, yeah, graduated in two thousand nine. Um, I then you know did a Trinity Masters in economics um, and followed the route of the trodden path of chartered accountancy, um, focusing on the corporate finance segment. Uh, so I did that for a couple of years and then um, gained the ACA um, and then spent a couple of years in private equity, uh, both in Ireland and over in London, focused on the real estate space. Uh, I then basically came back to uh, Dublin in 2016, joining the Ireland Strategic Investment Fund. That's the basically 8 billion Ireland national um, uh, sovereign wealth fund which invests across all uh, and all sectors of the Irish economy so I spent about uh, a year and a half there and then the opportunity came to join Goodbody and I suppose the the key reason why I wanted to join was to build a profile uh, and really like what 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 you could do as an equity analyst is specialize in a certain field both in and, and the area that I was going into was business uh, and uh, IT which was kind of a quite a broad sector but uh, I was looking to build a specialism within that so I joined Goodbody in 2018 and from there um, I basically um, started to specialise within the video gaming segment uh, and from there uh, we initiated on the UK video gaming ecosystem. That's essentially a report where we draw, drew out full coverage of the UK uh, video game developers uh, and publishers. One of the key reasons we, we started there was it was an Irish-based company called Keyword Studios who focus on that segment uh, in, in terms of the outsourcing side. So as we did the work on keywords, we figured out there was a broader ecosystem at play in the UK starting to uh, form, and that was a bunch of IPOs from the companies like Team 17, Frontier Developments. So I sort of positioned GoodBody um, to to uh, draw draw coverage in that space and 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 over time we've uh, built a franchise uh, where we're sort of uh, considered uh, you know one of the go-to houses from investors in the space now so can you give us an overview about the gaming industry like how how big is it what is the the the, the main location you, you you said you're 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 specialized on the UK market but maybe what's the what's the UK market compared to maybe the the whole European market can you give us a broad overview about that industry please yeah absolutely uh, it's a good question look i mean when you look at the the overall games industry um it's 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 one that has grown uh, massively in the last decade and what has really driven that growth is the uh, penetration of smartphones as people sort of uh, can access games uh, in a more casual basis uh, and, a, and an anywhere basis really so what that's actually led to is the proliferation of the industry to uh, over three billion people to where it is today and that's uh, you know that's another five percent growth in 2021 and what what we're seeing is when you look at the split of the industry, you've effectively got about 50% of, of the what we see as about 200 billion 
in global revenue in the games industry in mobile. Uh, you've got about 25% in console and about 25% in PC. They're both evenly split. Where we're seeing some of the headwinds right now is in the console side where there has been, it's more reliant on the big hits and sort of the consumer spend factor less the back catalogue piece suffers, which is the kind of older games in this kind of environment, whereas PC, which is more focused, well, not always, but focused on the indie t side of the market being smaller type games has actually held up quite resiliently. But if we're to look at how the industry has grown, it's very much through the lens of mobile. Mobile was 18 billion back in 2012. You know, it's now over 100 billion. So that tells you a, a long way of, about how, how it's grown. And, and, and in terms of the, ge the geographies, I mean, you got to just look at US as being, US and China being roughly 20 to 25 percent of the global market each. And then you're kind of in EMEA, another 20 percent. UK alone is about the sixth biggest global gaming market. It's about a six billion revenue market um, and has been growing consistently over the last few years. Um, and again, what we did see in the, in the last couple of years was obviously the surge in engagement in the pandemic, um, where we saw record revenue in 2020, which brought the industry up 20 percent. A normal year of growth is more like 10. So it doubled a normal year of growth in 2020 and actually brought a lot, lot more players in the eco ecosystem than have ever been in it before and, bring, and brought back a lot of players that had been uh, in the industry that probably left, left the console down and decided to kind of pick it back up in, 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 in that sort of lockdown era. Um, so uh, the growth is coming from uh, an array of, of um, areas in the industry, but clearly that sort of lockdown event was one massive catalyst but you've had areas you've had things like digital distribution you've had you know where, where games are now available online you've had obviously the adoption of mobile um and you've got you know broader geographic penetration of of the market um so you know but we still think it's a, a quite a nascent phase in certain technologies which we can I, i'm assuming we can get onto in due course but you know the industry is 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 evolving all the time um, you know, it's been on a spectacular growth curve for the last sort of 10 years. It's sort of m mellowing out from that after the, a couple of years of really strong comparisons in terms of 2020 and 21. So we're, we are seeing like a lot of the US publishers now come up against quite tough comps. And as people do, thi you know, do things outside of gaming, that kind of normalization effect. So that, that is coming into it. Um, but but on, on, a, on a general basis, we see three to five percent growth over the next sort of um four to five years and there's a number of areas driving that um uh, do you see any of the growth stagnating over the next few years as people start going out of uh, lockdowns and more back to the office and have a little bit less free time as they're doing a commute in and out or do you kind of see that growth continuing on and also a second part to that is uh would you see the effect of web tree games that have started to emerge in the last year two years as affecting the game industry as a whole or do you think they will where, where would they kind of slot into the industry yeah um look i think the, the two, two good questions there i mean wh when you look at the lockdown impact absolutely i mean when when you saw the engagement spikes that we saw in 2020 and 2021 
it, it was it would be very hard to sort of um, you know continue that in in a, in a normal sort of a world beyond lockdowns. So absolutely, there is a normalisation effect. But what we are seeing is the growth of the overall player base in the industry, and that's coming from new territories. It's not just the traditional markets, UK, Western Europe, uh, US, and and um, it's areas like um, North Africa, as you see, sort of uh, Middle East, North Africa, as you see, sort of the adoption of smartphones seeing significant growth. Latin America as well, also strongly growing. Um, and these are um, markets that have been relatively untapped uh, historically. Um, so there's, you know, there's new pockets of growth uh, from the from the lens of sort of new business models and that's areas like cloud gaming it's it's the further penetration of uh, mobile when we talk specifically about blockchain gaming i think we're very early in the journey here i mean we have had a lot of let's say misses in 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 we've seen a lot of vc interest in this segment there's been a huge array of of, of different projects getting funding but we've also not seen the engagement effect like again it boils back down to you can make a good blockchain game but it still has to be a good game it still has to have the quality standpoint and one of the things that you know that sort of bracket of the industry has been missing is the quality uh, and it, there has been um, sort of you know various sort of uh, instances of scams etc associated with some of those uh, titles so to, to engage um, that sort of side of the industry uh, more materially we're just going to have to see better games and better investment come down that route i think what is emerging is a kind of a you know, almost a web 2.5 type, uh, blockchain 2.5, so where you're kind of seeing a mix of bringing the current status quo of development teams towards that that type of a monetization model. Um, but, it, you know, there is quite a reluctance on the side of the developer here um, to sort of, uh, let's say, disenfranchise their own audience base by very much saying they're all for Web3. We've seen Ubisoft try that and fail. We've seen many of the bigger players try and fail. But we do know one thing, that all of the major publishers are investing in this and investing strongly because it is a, a future growth curve, but I don't think it's been properly executed on yet because ultimately to make a proper game probably takes four to five years and these the, this trend has only been here for you know one to two to three years so yeah you know, we haven't seen the fruits of that yet in terms of the quality so you already talked about the the big players in the market i think they're called triple a studios if yeah. that's right um so you focus mainly on these companies when investing or do you do like investments in like game startups if there's something like this do you do only investment in public companies or do you do equity deals in in, in, in startups as kind of a VC also? How, how is that market so, so, like, if you look at the UK market, the listed space, there's publishers um, and there's uh, outsourcers. So what, what you traditionally have is on the publishing side, you're either AAA, which is kind of the big budget, which is frontier developments in the UK, uh, or you're in the indie bracket. And there's a number of uh, studios in the UK listed in the indie bracket. They're studios like Devolver Digital, Tiny Builds, um, and Team 17, who we cover. But then you've got the other end of the market in terms of the outsourcing side, which is essentially not taking any risk on IP and, and, and being the essentially the picks and shovels of the games industry, bringing together what publishers need on a day-to-day -day basis and allowing them to keep a flexible cost model uh, throughout their sort of um, development project. So in the UK, we focus on the listed space, but there's a variation of investors that look on the outsourcing side or on the IP side. Some investors don't have the appetite for risk within 
IP. They don't want to take risk on an individual one title, where some investors want to take exposure to the broad growth in the games ecosystem. That's Keyword Studios, for instance. That gives you that lens of sort of, you know, channeling that sort of 10% plus industry growth, which we've seen for the last decade, but also maybe a bit more because they're a strategic player in that and they're taking more share than others. So we look fully on the listed side. We also meet and 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 um and discuss with some of the private games developers as well but when we're advising investors it's it's very much focused on the public side um i know you just mentioned about the public and kind of private roles in the industry but um who would be the key public and private investment players in the gaming industry yeah like there's there's really a broad array depending on the segment so i mean um in in terms of the public side of it you actually now have it, it, back in 2018 when we brought out coverage in the UK. It was actually quite a nascent group of investors um, and it, they weren't in any way as qualified around the uh, individual product as they are now. And in that I'm saying they are absolutely tracking every single title, every franchise by month. Uh, and that's why we've moved into things like franchise tracking and really understanding the data behind each developer on a month-to-month basis to gain sort of forward trends on earnings. Um, so all investors now are doing that. So you've got a mix of pension funds, hedge funds, long-only funds, uh, a mix of continental European, um, UK-only uh, sort of US funds investing into Europe. There's a really broad array here. Um, and what I would say is, because of the success of some of the companies in the UK, we've seen Electronic Arts um, take out Codemasters in a fantastic multiple for the founders of Codemasters. It was almost a 30 times EV EBITDA multiple on forward earnings, which is unheard of in this type of environment. But back then, it, it proved uh, and executed against its business model and really... Um, brought more investors into the segment as a result. Similarly, we've seen Tencent uh, acquire Sumo out of public markets, which was an outsourcing business. And again, in that instance, you know, at a very strong multiple, and again, showing the benefits of if you create something really tangible, really with a really strong growth curve and journey, there's opportunities on both ends of the curve from you know existing investors following the story and, and redoubling down on their investment to the emergence of strategics who no longer want to uh, you know see that asset in you know you know would like to see that assets in their own hands. So like the types of investors are we've talked about are like institutional, then you've got uh, strategics. So we think about those like ten cent uh, netties on the Chinese side who are absolutely heavily invested in European IP and, and, and now broadening, had, having been mobile um, specific publishers focused on the Chinese market, they're uh, reducing exposure in China, moving into Europe, doing more in the US and Canada and sort of really trying to bring a multi-platform skill set to a global market, to build global IPs for a global market. They're still at a very early phase in that journey but even in, in, in the last, you know, two to three years they've been some of the most active buyers of, of, of games businesses and they also take strategic stakes in some of the UK names you've got like Tencent have a 10% stake in um, Frontier who we cover for instance so they tend to kind of you know get to know the businesses potentially before you know ever taking majority acquisitions so and then outside of that you've got like venture capital uh, absolutely um, 
a very active market in the game segment. Uh, you've got Andreessen Horowitz. You've got you know lots of kind of UK-based funds like London Venture Partners. You've got Hero Capital in the UK who raised a, a SPAC to invest in games businesses across Europe, led by Serene Livingston. So there's a bunch of different variety of investors in the game segment. And that's kind of all driven by what we've seen in the last decade in terms of the strategic um, growth of the industry. You already talked a bit about outsourcing. Um, is outsourcing in the game is gaming industry different to other um, other industries? And uh, what kinds of core activities benefit from outsourcing in the gaming gaming industry? Yeah, I mean, I mean, when you look at the games industry, like it's quite immature in some ways. I mean, it's only emerged about 40, 50 years ago, really. So when you look at how the movie industry, that's probably one way of comparing it, where it might go. Because right now, when you look at what's outsourced, it's the more process ends driven of, of game development. So if I take... Um, uh, if I take sort of um, functional testing or localization, uh, they would have been the predominantly ones that got early outsourced faster. So you might see 70 to 80 percent of that workload being outsourced and, and it being very comfortable from a first party publisher's point of view in being outsourced. But uh, in, in, in the context of kind of what's happened in the last few years, one of the, the issues was publishers weren't uh, trusting outsourcers with their source code and their engine. That's changing. So if you're someone like Keyword Studios, who we cover, who've been, you know, consolidating in the outsourcing industry for the last decade, slowly but surely, they have built up the creds with these publishers to build uh, the trust that they can work on as an external dev capacity with them. And what I would say is, we're still at a very nascent stage in the overall progression of the outsourcing industry, because, you know, Keywords, having done 50 deals in the last, uh, I would say, um, 10 years, it's 50 acquisitions, there's still only 5% of the outsourced services industry in size. So it's still a very fragmented market. They're the number one player, but really, really fragmented. The next player is about a third of their size who don't focus on the full realm of um, sort of outsourced services. But we're starting to see that emerge. So what we're starting to see is players like... Um, you know, you've got, you know, you've got uh, virtuous uh, Chinese games business focused on Asia, but now have, have kind of moved into Western Europe. They obviously have a business here with Black Shamrock, but also, you know, we're seeing them materially focus on art and engineering. What we're seeing from keywords is something similar, i.e. moving up the value chain. And that's happening because publishers are more and more uh, under pressure because the it's, it's not just... Um, you know, the cost implications, it's the volume implications as you move from a sort of a last generation to current generation in terms of the sophistication of the content that's going into production. Essentially, you need more artists, more audio people, more uh, testers to make the game of tomorrow. It's, it's constantly, the bar is constantly rising. And as such, you know, budgets are rising, but it, it comes to a point where, uh, you know, first party publishers are you know, more and more inclined to use the outsourcing in a flexible way when it comes to the peak of projects. So I would say, like, we have moved to a point in the industry where, you know, it's getting to the case where um, publishers are using outsourcers a lot more strategically than they have done in the past, but it's still got a long way to go to reach the movie industry where 90, 95% of, of, of production is outsourced. And to put it in perspective, you know, engineering, we think 
less than 40% of that is currently outsourced. You know, there's, you could argue about 80 to 90% of that could be outsourced over time, which is why someone like Keyword Studios are saying of the, let's say, 400 million of deal flow they do over the next three years, probably 80% of that is going to be in engineering to create a front-footed position for this excess demand that's coming from publishers. And what has also sort of, I suppose, uh, changed that view of working with sort of, you know, fragmented players in each and each different silo which would have been the way the industry traditionally outsourced work um, you've seen the instance like um, cyberpunk and how that damaged reputations we think that that's going to result in a drive for quality a strive for you know not making those mistakes again because you know at the end of the day these are 100 million plus titles in terms of the AAA investment and the last thing you want to do is for the sake of you know one percent of your budget uh, you know, um, see a miss on day one, which, you know, tarnishes your game, I suppose, for the long run. So for outsourcing in Ireland and they're outsourcing to Ireland, do you see industry member bodies such as the Irish game makers or games in Northern Ireland influencing uh, decisions on big uh, big gaming companies or do you see it as their, or their influence on even uh, local uh, gaming companies in Ireland? Yeah, look, I think there's, there's an absolute role for Immert actually, who, who uh, I joined Immert in the last few weeks, and, and, and there's a role there to sort of link uh, Irish companies up um, internationally, but there's also a role to really uh, allow um, some of the bigger players in the industry to understand the benefits of joining here. You know, we've just obviously announced a, DAC, a tax credit in, in the Irish budget for games development. It's, it's a critically uh, important development by the Irish government. It may not be um, everything that's, that's, that's required for publishers to join on day one, but it's a starting stone, stepping stone potentially to see Ireland emerge as a, you know, a hub for games development. We've seen that traction in other territories. For instance, if you take Montreal, which, which uh, went down this route you know, over a decade ago, it's now got you know, 10,000 plus. Uh, they're just purely sort of uh, building games uh, in terms of testing games, etc., etc. In terms of the Irish scene, um, you know, I think they are, there is a role for Immer to really um, closely build relationships with European and, and US um, publishers and outsourcers um, to understand for, from, from their perspective, you know, what, what it requires for them to uh, invest in Ireland. We've obviously seen Black Shamrock um, um, talking about adding about 120 jobs, as, and that's probably a direct correlation with the uh, the the uh, tax credits. Um, you know, Virtuous are the uh, ultimate parent of Black Shamrock, and ver we know Virtuous are very much focused on core AAA uh, and um, you know uh, engineering and art and engineering. So high quality um, employer in the country but you know it's not just that does it create the nucleus for um, a hotbed of sort of IP activity in the country I think it's the onus of you know um, both Immert um, and potentially roles for Enterprise Ireland in, in terms of really validating the potential that Ireland has here you know a highly educated workforce very very um, strong uh, sort of uh, university pedigree for the types of roles that sort of EA, Activision, etc., some of the major players require. So I think outsourcing will benefit. It's obviously virtuous uh, have, have, have already been mentioned, but there's other companies like Sumo who have invested in tax-efficient locations. Obviously, Keywords, who are on our own doorstep here, um, are very much... Uh, you know, positive on the, 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 the credit and, you know, keywords um, as a business employ 12,000 people globally. 
why couldn't they employ a lot of their engineering talent here? They don't, they don't currently. You know, there's, there's, there's conversations to be had there. Um, in the current environment, like investment environment, we see a lot of funds shifted away from more risky VC investments to more like, like stable uh, investment. Does this environment affect the gaming industry at all? Yeah, no, I, I don't think the gaming industry is immune here. It's absolutely um, seen a slowdown in the level of funding and the time the VCs are taken to execute. So the level of due diligence going into deals now has completely multiplied. Um, and also, although we hear about a lot of dry powder in various VC funds, you know, there's the, there, there isn't um, really evidence of that dry powder being executed upon. And it probably will come to the stage where a lot of that capital will have to reverse back into the LPs. So I think um, in terms of the video gaming segment, you know, one of the things the founders are having to kind of get their heads around is the level of dilution they're going to have to take um, to bring their businesses to the next level. Um, because we're not in an era of um, constant up rounds here anymore uh, in this type of an environment. Um, but I think at the same time, you know, we are seeing, um, we are seeing, we have seen the emergence of several specific video game funds in the last 12 to 18 months. Um, but I just think they're going to take longer and it will be, you know, very much the best prospects that get through. I think, you know, being pre-revenue for too long, if you don't kind of bring that through from a seed to a series A, if you don't start to show real traction, it's going to be hard to gain the up round, hard to gain kind of you know the next lead check from the same investor so like from from the vc side of the industry i don't think it's immune from the overall slowdown in vc investment i think the games industry as a whole is certainly not recession proof i think you can just look to kind of the global industry trends at the moment as, as a point on that but i think uh if just looking purely um at the sort of longer run picture kind of uh, assuming kind of, uh, you know, the, the kind of potential growth of the industry. You know, we're big believers that, uh, you know, there is a huge growth curve ahead, but there's no doubt that the shorter run, there's a lot of investor uh, concern around kind of short-term earnings and momentum. Um, and there you were saying kind of taking uh, a longer due diligence is a trend that's been seen. Do you see any of this being impacted by kind of the emergence of ESG factors in the last few years such as especially on the social kind of governance side of holding uh, customer data and then obviously like online trap chat rooms and stuff like that that would be in these games do you see that influencing decisions of uh, vc investors or other investors in the in this space i think in general like having kind of initiated on the sector in 2018 esg has become a lot more up the investor uh, radar than it has ever been um i'm you know there's you know it's it's kind of a a veto factor on an investment now in, in a lot of fund mandates and um, you just look at blackrock or some of the major funds they place huge importance on um the overall uh, esg scorecard which they're essentially building internally and um, so the yes as you mentioned is is key in the video gaming segment so you know we've seen instances in our own coverage where you know there's been issues with uh, qa teams or recognition for work uh, you know qa versus the production side or etc cetera, etc cetera. and sort of the the pay levels we've seen the issues in ubisoft we've seen the issues in activision the sector is absolutely on the radar from an esg perspective um and definitely has been um 
a bigger issue now than it's ever been. But I think one of the things that, in a, in a good way for the sector, that it, what, what it means for the longer run is the impact of crunch, which we've seen development crunch, i.e. kind of working right up to the, to the end and, and overtime, etc. You know, it's very hard to get away with that in this environment uh, if you're a public listed company and um, to be working your your peop- your employment team sort of longer than than they they would they would be contracted for. Like we're seeing that pushback from investors. They don't want to see that within their um, within their portfolios. So, as you say, the yes being probably the biggest highlighted area of concern. Uh, in terms of the ESG on the video game industry, because the E, in fairness, stands up quite well, um, but certainly the S is is something we give close consideration to. Um, we see the Microsoft Activision merger uh, is being like scrutinized by regulators. Normally, an M and A process is down to like scale and efficiency. Do those rules apply in the gaming industry as well? Um, I mean, the, the specifics of this one is is very much. Uh, it, it feels like uh, the FTC is. Um, is is really looking to make a scapegoat of this one given its its push its anti-tech push but you know it's microsoft have essentially given 10-year guarantees around some of the core ips legal guarantees we think they're going to have to do more i mean there we're already hearing that the uk regulator may um may rule against it which may mean further solutions are required i think you know the eu regulator has just thrown uh, the charge sheet at microsoft in relation to um you know exclusivity commitments by microsoft on core ip you know the, the key concerns for them are can microsoft establish an early lead in in the cloud gaming can its subscription market just become um, build an unassailable lead and with Sony losing Call of Duty what does that mean for sort of Sony's longer term hardware positioning um, because of those guarantees that Microsoft are, are, are starting to provide I think they're just going to have to give more um, I think they've came out quite positively post the uh, sort of EU commission sort of uh, charge sheet noting they would um, assess uh, and sort of deal with and felt they could comfortably deal with what was being put against them in terms of solutions that they would have for for the EU. So I think if they can deal with the EU and bring hope to bring the UK in line, then they have a better chance with the FTC with the case ruling in August. So it would put a lot more pressure on the FTC ahead of that so they could potentially negotiate ahead of a court case. And uh, what what do you see the future of the global or what does the future look like for global game development? Look, I think it's it's a very positive future because, you know, you've got 3 billion um, people playing games uh, now. There's roughly about a 47% female, 53% male split to that. Uh, the average age of a gamer is 35, uh, which I couldn't believe when we initially started looking at it. But it has been growing in the last couple of years. Um, the obviously pandemic brought a huge new sticky player base to the market. You just look at Steam and it's hitting new concurrent highs as of uh, the end of January at 32 million concurrent players. It's about 60% ahead of where it was pre-pandemic. Um, and you look at where the industry is going, cloud gaming, you know, VR. Uh, VR could be transformative uh, to the industry. It's still a small segment of revenue. But, you know, obviously PlayStation and Quest for for, for Meta are, 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 are rolling out products and we're going to see a lot more hardware uh, derivatives which will, you know, build the experience. Cloud gaming is still in its infancy but uh, presents a really significant opportunity to the industry. Obviously, Google laid away from that and, and shut down Stadia. 
that doesn't mean cloud gaming is finished. Far from it. The forecast suggests it's about an 8 billion market by the end of 2024, which is still roughly only a couple of percent of the industry, but growing very aggressively. Um, and, and, and just thinking about all those models as they intertwine, you're, you know, you've got a, you know, an opportunity for more and more players to enter the ecosystem. Barrier entry are reduced. Um, and in that type of environment, uh, that's positive for developers. One last thing I'd, I'd, I'd call out is we've been under, you know, two years of supply uh, chain constraints, and we saw Sony come out in the last couple of weeks noting they, you know, don't really see those constraints anymore. So as more hardware gets into the system, that builds the sort of demand for software, and we've seen that kind of uh, slowdown in the last few months. But we think as that sort of hardware enters the system, um, to meet that excess demand that's going to uh, be positive for the overall sort of consumer in the industry. There's any questions from the audience? Uh. Yes, Giuseppe here. Uh, thank you for being here. And um, I wanted to ask you, do you see in the future um, any other uh, new markets that the gaming industry will target uh, other than the typical audience that they target? So even from an uh, investment uh, perspective, do you see anything that has captured your attention? Is a new growing market for the future? Like, I mean, I think in terms of business models, we're still like very early in terms of VR adoption, and we're seeing like a lot of games companies that weren't in VR target that segment. But the general theme that I've seen outside of video gaming is you're, the linking of kind of um, film with games, and um, so that that sort of creates, you know, you, you've seen kind of the Last of Us launch with with Sony and. You know, I think there's 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 ten or twelve uh, video gaming adaptions launching through Netflix or it's or other platforms. That sort of interlinking a multimedia type approach is very much uh, what is probably going to drive the next layer of growth. I think for for some of the bigger players, and I think we're probably going to see more of that. So we saw. Uh, and The Last of Us, once uh, once that uh, launched the HBO series, a huge uptick in terms of the video gaming sales for that franchise. So it creates awareness, rebuilds people back into the franchise. One of the players that we look at uh, is TinyBuild. It's a very small games business, but what it's trying to do is that very multimedia-focused um, franchise approach and it's done it with one of their ips hello neighbor so they have comic books you know they've the game they've uh, animated series and it all links back and even when they built the animated series they're timing it with the launch of the game i think we're going to see more of those type of uh, developments i think like obviously the some of the other trends are just new platforms so cloud gaming is very nascent obviously one thing we didn't touch on is subscription and like subscription from a development developer's point of view or publisher's point of view is, is is going absolutely in the right way in terms of the level of upfront that Sony or Microsoft are willing to put into this to support your underlying um, studio's development. So look, I think there's a variety of um, you know new, new things that studios will look at, but I, I would say that sort of multimedia approach to your IP is probably one of the, one of the future drivers. Uh, so yeah, great presentation, uh, really illuminating. Um, one question I had was kind of related to loot boxing, um, and which is some consider gambling and things like that. Um, so, how much of kind of the growth of revenue in gaming is kind of down to that, and kind of where do you stand on, let's say, legislation to either limit that or to make it more visible about what the odds of winning are and things like that? Yeah, uh, no, it's a great question. I've been following it for the last few years. Obviously, we've seen 
Belgium and Netherlands and Finland, a uh, number of European countries, the UK closely examine this, and um, the US as well. So I think we're going to see, and actually one interesting one, we've seen Supercell, one of the major games publishers on mobile, uh, pull loot boxes out of their, their IP in, in recent weeks. So maybe that could be a good uh, sign of where, where things would be going. As regards kind of its impact on the industry, I think we tally it at about 5 to 6% of global revenue. What what is likely to happen more is disclosure and a kind of cooperative approach between a lot of the major players in the industry around essentially kind of uh, working in tandem with the regulator around this to ensure it doesn't fall under the the auspices of gambling. Um, it's certainly, you know, they've they've tried to to make it that way in 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 Netherlands or in Belgium, etc. But, you know, I think recent court cases suggest they're having a lot of difficulty actually proving it is gambling. Um, But I think, you know, just the kind of from a just going back to ESG in the sector and whatnot, I think, you know, if you're a public company and you're associated with that type of IP, you're going to want to reduce exposure to that in this type of uh, investor environment, you know. Uh, Arjun here. I want to go back to the Microsoft uh, Activision Blizzard acquisition. So even if they do give out assurance of existing IP? How does it look for newer IPs that come up after the acquisition? As well as, you know, developing uh, these existing IPs for console-exclusive features, which alienate, you know, other consoles as well. Yeah, no, fair question. I mean, I mean, the the biggest um, bugbear of the regulator at the moment is just the the quantum of the size of, of, say, some of these IPs in terms of, you know, 100 million sort of Call of Duty uh, registered players, etc., and what that means. So that's kind of taking a lot of the focus. So, like, I, I think what will come down to is the focus will be very much on the existing IPs of... Um, of Activision and, you know, what have, what have turned into staple IPs and how they can um, sort of make sure that that IP is kept uh, open access, uh, free from sort of um, sort of being sort of the quality, uh, retaining the same quality on launch in terms of other platform launches. I think there's just going to be a lot of negotiation between the regulator, Microsoft, um, and I think Microsoft is, 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 is so willing to get the deal over the line that they're prepared to be pretty, um, pretty open on negotiations. So, but I think the vast majority of the concerns concentrate around the key IPs, which create competitive advantages for Microsoft. Can I ask you, Patrick, um, what, what are your thoughts on the tabletop and board game industry and its relationship with video game and, and synergies, separate markets? Where does, where, where does it fit? I think like we have like I cover um, games workshops, so I mean we have seen huge uh, crossovers. Ellen, I mean ultimately one of the things that we are seeing is, you know, m- much more opportunities for say games workshop to license their IP to a broader market. So the use of AAA publishers, and and doing that in a way that sort of opens up um, that IP, like you know, to an audience that is is, is quite. I would say kind of um, intense and sort of uh, you know in 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 certain markets it's it's very strong but it, you know if you take Asia for instance for for Games Workshop uh, it's it's relatively mild to be honest in terms of the interest levels so we think you know they've they've done a deal with Nexon 
So we think video gaming can be a huge proponent given the global audience base of the IP to, to, to sort of open the lens on that, bring in the casual player and potentially even if they convert a small percentage of those players into the hobbyists, it creates a huge runway of growth. And I think just talking about that, you've, we've had the Amazon um, announcement for Games Workshop IP and sort of that kind of multimedia faceted. So we expect to see Amazon launch uh, you know, Warhammer through um, Amazon Prime over the next 12 to 18 months. Investors are getting very excited about that. That's kind of bringing an IP that was largely out of the spotlight very much into the spotlight. We've seen the same with Lord of the Rings from Amazon. So I think in general, like, I mean, we've obviously seen, you know, uh, we've seen Embracer uh, acquire in the RPG segment, and 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 look at the crossovers between gaming uh, and and the, and the, and the uh, hobby set. So look, I think there's huge synergies across the board. So I think we'll wrap it up here. Thank you for your expertise, Patrick. Very much appreciated. Yeah, thanks very much, Patrick. It was a really interesting discussion. Yeah, thanks, guys. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. The music used is Voltaic Fluctuations by Ben Prunty and used with his permission. 